Good afternoon, everyone. Good morning to those who are not in the Eastern time zone. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a practicing surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. A 2021 survey found that one in three physicians and advanced practices, advanced practice registered nurses intend to reduce work hours and one in five physicians plan to retire. A recent study by the Association of American Medical Colleges projects a shortage of as many as 48,000 primary care physicians by 2034. California, Texas, and Florida have been projected to have the worst shortages. Most states require medical school graduates to complete at least one year of postgraduate residency training before granting them a license to care for patients. Yet the number of medical school graduates exceeds the number of residency positions. According to the American Medical Association, in 2021, roughly 7% of doctor of medicine or MD and roughly 10% of doctor of osteopathic medicine or DO graduates failed to match with a residency program. Many are stuck in limbo. They cannot apply the knowledge and skills acquired with their doctorate degrees to care for patients. They also cannot hone and develop those skills in a residency program. Some states are developing innovative ways to help address the shortage. With a large medically underserved rural population, Missouri became the first state to launch a new licensure category, assistant physician or AP, not to be confused with physician assistant or PA. Assistant physicians are essentially apprentice physicians, a common way to train physicians before the modern era of residency programs. Under this reform, medical school graduates who cannot land a residency position can still care for patients in primary care clinics while enhancing their knowledge and skills. Seven other states have since passed similar laws, Arkansas, Kansas, Utah, Arizona, Louisiana, Idaho, and most recently, Tennessee. In Alabama, a bill licensing assistant physicians awaits the governor's signature as we're holding this event. By lifting constraints on medical school graduates becoming assistant physicians and then perhaps letting them use that experience as an independent pathway to general medical practice, as we'll discuss, states can increase the number and variety of primary care providers and improve access to primary care while reducing cost. Joining us to discuss this innovative reform are Kevin D. Diaratna, Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation Center for Data Analysis. Kevin has published research on the assistant physician reform. Keith J. Frederick D.O., orthopedic surgeon and former Missouri State Legislator, who was instrumental in Missouri enacting the country's first assistant physician law. And Lyman Wastrell, MD, a primary care physician in rural Missouri, practicing under the state's assistant physician law. After each of our experts share their thoughts, we'll engage in a conversation and take questions from viewers. Please submit your questions on the Cato event website or on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag Cato Health. And if you're interested in pursuing the subject further, please see the links under additional resources on the event webpage, including the link to a Cato briefing paper on the subject that I recently published with Cato Research Associate Spencer Pratt. Kevin, let's start with you. You've written about the subject on multiple occasions, and you recently testified before the Texas legislature on a bill to allow APs to practice. So let's hear uh, uh, from you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Yes, I'm Kevin Dyron. I'm the Chief Statistician, Data Scientist, and Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation Center for Data Analysis. So yeah, I'm going to talk about expanding access to, to care via improving the medical licensure process. So before we get started, there are a bunch of fundamentally important questions regarding healthcare. 
what are the barriers inhibiting access to care? And is this issue even being approached from the correct angle? So broadly speaking, access to care is defined by the Institute of Medicine as having the timely use of personal health services to achieve the best health outcomes. So there are two ways that this can be achieved on the demand side of healthcare and the supply side of healthcare. Most policy research and most efforts by lawmakers has focused heavily on the demand side of care. And there hasn't been nearly enough attention to the supply side. And that's what we're going to get into here. So what impacts the supply of medical practitioners? Over the years, medicine has evolved into a highly regulated field, as you can imagine. And there's a licensure process for physicians, nurses, as well as physician assistants and many other subspecialties and fields within medicine. So to become a licensed doctor in America, you firstly have to graduate from, a, from an accredited medical school and complete a residency. During the, as a result of the residency, I should say, you obtain your licensure and you become eligible to sit for the boards. These residencies are these post-medical school, internship and apprenticeship training. They're accredited by the nonprofit ACGME or the Accreditation Council of Graduate Medical Education. And they're in general three to seven year tr training programs and they follow a syllabus to train doctors in the specialty of interest, such as pediatrics, internal medicine, surgery, and so forth. They're heavily subsidized by taxpayer funding, namely mostly Medicare, but also Medicaid, the HRSA, and the VA as well. And through your residency, you generally don't have to complete, uh, Dr. Singer talks about this in his recent paper, you don't have to complete your entire residency to get a license, but most people do. They, after their residency, they get a license and they are board eligible. They can sit for the specialty board of their, of the residency specialty that they have pursued. So a key question is what does the supply of doctors look like, look right now? Because this is where the supply of doctors comes from. So I have this slide here that nicely visualizes this and you have a, slide you have a bit of a problem here because the american population is aging and so is the medical profession so the aging population has impacted other policy debates such as medicare and social security but with the medical profession aging also you have doctors retiring as dr singer had just alluded to and this is particularly serious in rural areas and as you can see in this slide by 2034 you have a shortage of between 37,800 and 124,000 physicians. At the same time, we have a surplus of talent. And that's the next slide here. This comes from the residency match process. So each year, medical graduates apply from their medical schools, in general from their medical schools, for the residency match. And this is the process in which they obtain their residency. Now, because you have more medical graduates than residency slots available, you end up having several thousand medical graduates each year without a residency position. And without a residency, these people can't do anything because medicine is a licensed profession. Our estimates at the Heritage Foundation Center for Data Analysis illustrate that you have over slightly over 5,000 unmatched medical grads that are either US citizens or green card holders. 
uh, this is an important aspect of this because these citizens or green card holders are legally authorized to work here, yet their talent goes to waste because they did not match into a residency position. So, okay. so as a result, we have a conundrum. Namely, we have an existing and impending shortage of doctors, as well as a surplus of talent. So from a policy perspective, these medical graduates have acquired a vast amount of knowledge and it could be very useful to tap this surplus of talent to ameliorate the physician shortage. So in our research at the Heritage Foundation, this is linked to in the event webpage, as well as at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, what we suggest is provisional licensure. A medical graduate who has graduated from an accredited medical school and passed the United States medical licensing exams should be eligible for a provisional license to work under the supervision of a collaborating physician. This has actually become actionalized in a few states, including Missouri, as some of the, my colleagues here or my friends here in this, in this session are going to talk about. Missouri, Arkansas, Kansas, Utah, Washington State, and Arizona. And this is very useful to tap the surplus of talent and ameliorate the shortage. Now, nevertheless, there have been some criticisms, especially when these laws were first pursued, namely that this would result in an underclass of doctors or jeopardize patient safety. But the bottom line is medical graduates over the course of their training have acquired a vast amount of knowledge. They're not going to practice independently. They're going to work under the supervision of a collaborating physician. And they're not substantially less trained than physician assistants and nurse practitioners who do this type of work under a collaborating physician anyway. And in fact, some of these foreign doctors who may have years, if not decades of experience practicing in their home countries might be very experienced, perhaps even more so than their colleague who they'll be collaborating with. So altogether, the potential of tapping the supply would significantly ameliorate the physician shortage, particularly in rural areas. And ultimately, you know, Dr. Singer has, has talked about this before can result in potentially alternative training mechanisms outside of residencies and alternative boards and board certifications that the, the market can generate. So thank you. I'm happy to uh, take any questions at the end, but uh, I'll pass the, the baton on to one of my colleagues here. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, Keith, so you're a practicing orthopedic surgeon and as a state lawmaker, you, you were the first in the country to get a legislature to allow assistant physicians to practice. Uh, and in our Cato briefing paper, we, we consider Missouri's assistant physician law to be the best in the country. First, what motivated you and what, what obstacles did you overcome? And please tell us how Missouri's law works. Well, first, I want to thank you for uh, hosting this and for the Heritage Foundation and Cato giving their voices to this topic. It's a, it's a tremendous opportunity for improvement of our healthcare system in the country, but it's under not appreciated. You know, being the first state, it was quite a challenge because those of you who are listening, who are involved in state legislatures know that it's not real common to get something passed, especially something very substantial, like a new category of licensure, the first year. Usually it's the first year lays the groundwork, you soften up the opposition, and then in subsequent years, you, you make more headway and you finally get it passed. Well, we got it passed the first year, mostly because there was a great need in the state of Missouri 
Of our 114 counties, 110 of them were health profession shortage areas or HIPSAs. And uh, it's a real opportunity to work across party lines. The minority leader was very receptive to this concept. And so uh, it wasn't without its difficulties and hiccups, but it, we did get it past the first year. But then the implementation stage was quite the rule promulgation took two and a half to three years. We passed it in 2014. I don't think we uh, licensed our first assistant physician until 2017. And there were those uh, who opposed the concept who were basically trying to change the implementation of the law so that it was not really, uh, in keeping with the, you know, four corners of the page. And particularly they were trying to introduce a, a time limit, which was never really considered. So anyway, there was a tremendous need. There was a bipartisan uh, recognition of that. And uh, I should mention also that a resolution came through the Missouri State Medical Association endorsing this basic concept. And then I sort of put the meat on the bones to, you know, a program that would actually work. So uh, I would say that uh, the challenges that exist now in Missouri basically are around reimbursement. We drafted it with the assistance of some very experienced healthcare attorneys in the Missouri legislature in the services, legislative research. But the language that we adopted, although I was assured it would accomplish uh, Medicare reimbursement, uh, Medicare looked at that language and kind of said, ah, we don't see it that way. And as Medicare goes, often go the other third party insurance carriers. The challenges right now is that we are getting reimbursement for assistant physician services by Medicaid because we have control of that as a state. But Mayor's not done that. Now we're trying to work with our congressional delegations. And now that there are more states uh, that have such laws, I think we'll have better success. Um, one other thing that comes to light though, and uh, Dr. Singer brought this to my attention really, that the language of Missouri's laws, and I think the other states as well, because many of them took some of our language, uh, does require insurance carriers to reimburse assistant physicians on the same basis as they uh, reimburse other so-called practitioners. Uh, that notwithstanding, it hasn't happened in Missouri, but I think it may be worthwhile to pursue. So achieving reimbursement from Medicare and third-party insurances is a challenge that once that is solved, I think the expansion of our program and the other states will be exponential. Now, looking at opportunities uh, in the future, one of the things I see as a real opportunity, and I did have some mention of it in the legislation, it was permissive language, but not required, was to look at the opportunity for establishing the third pathway, or alternative pathway that Dr. Singer referred to. And I nicknamed that the earn earn program and um, very briefly it would use uh, echo the enhanced community health outreach program that was pioneered in new mexico to teach about uh, i think it was about liver failure um, but uh, many states now have a well-established echo program that basically is a hub and spoke method of distributing information so our major medical centers could be the source of the experts who would then give a sort of a grand rounds uh, presentation 
periodically, maybe a couple times a week, um, to assistant physicians out in the rural underserved areas, along with benchmark exams and a very defined curriculum. So I, I won't belabor that, but I think there is an opportunity with enough time and effort to establish such a program. It should not, not however, be any, it should be longer and harder than a traditional uh, family medicine residency. My daughter and son-in-law are both family medicine trained doctors and I have uh, sought their counsel and I believe it would be wise to uh, make it more lengthy. And uh, from my discussions with assistant physicians, they would be perfectly willing to do that. So in the effort, uh, in an effort to try to leave enough time for questions and answers, I think I'll stop my presentation here and, and move on. Thanks so much, Keith. Uh, so Lyman, uh, many critics of assistant physician laws claim that med school graduates who didn't match with a residency program are quote, not good enough. But you match with a highly regarded residency program and 10 months into it with just two months to go, you quit after learning about the opportunity to practice in rural Missouri as an assistant physician. I think your story is very interesting and I'd like to, if you could share that with us, uh, how long have you been practicing and what kind of collaborative arrangements uh, do you have with licensed primary care physicians? Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Jeff, for putting on this event. And yes, uh, so uh, I do have a little bit of a different background here than what many people would expect for somebody who practices as a doctor under the assistant physician licensure. Now, uh, I think some of that background actually helped my wife and I, we both actually practice under this law, we're both MDs, uh, to make that decision to leave our residency program. Uh, my, my original background, I'm an economics and finance major from the University of Nebraska, and I worked um, in the brokerage industry and after that in the oil industry of all places because I could do math. And I think working other jobs prior to going into medicine uh, helped me to understand what we were seeing when my wife and I were in residency. And yes, as Jeff had said, my wife and I, we couples matched into residency back in 2017. We had many, many interviews and there was many excellent programs that we had a chance at. Um, despite some of the detractors, I do have very good scores. In fact, on my MCAT, I scored uh, in the 95th percentile in the country and, and actually taught that test. And so we did match uh, and we were in a program that um, I think to be polite, I will say that we were less than impressed. Uh, and I don't want to go into great detail of what happened with my wife and I, but I would just uh, remind ourselves of the axiom of, uh, of absolute power can corrupt people. And uh, our situation, we did receive a settlement and uh, I'm enjoying the farm from that, but I don't think anything can ever uh, remove the damage those people caused in our lives. But I want to read uh, things that we discovered after we started going through this ourselves. Um, uh, th right now in this country, there is a residency process. It, it is the only way for a person who goes through med school in the many years, a decade of study, uh, and I would say even that whole formation process of what it uh, takes to become a doctor from youth on, uh, the only way for that person to become a doctor is to go through the residency program. And that has not always been the case. In fact, up until 75, family medicine residency didn't even exist. And your doctors that practice out in your community graduated from medical school and went out. Um, because residency now has become the requirement, uh, residency has absolute power and they can do what they want. And sometimes they do things that they should not. Now, no detraction to those excellent residency programs that are out there that are doing the right thing and creating wonderful doctors, but there's some places that are not. And that's why we're having issues of residency suicide that shows up so often. Um, 
here are some comments that I read that maybe would give you an idea as to why people might uh, want to leave a residency program. Quote, my attending is making me work 120 hours this week. Is there anything or any, anybody I could go to for help? The program administrator hinted if I had sex with her, the evaluation would go away. I thought that was disgusting. And, and now she gave me a second bad review. Nobody's going to believe this. And she's so sly about it. I transferred, but I'm not through the first year. Am I done? My colleague is being railroaded by the clinical competency board because they hate that he is Christian. His patients speak very well of him and his care for the whole body, not just the physical. Um, he's the best doctor in our group, but if I say anything, they will comment for me next. On my OB guide rotation last week, the attending was not there, and the resident tried to make me deliver a baby alone because she was tired. I told her no, that was against policy. Now she and her OB residents are trying to fail me in the rotation. There's a lot more comments here, and I'm going to shorten it to just those couple there, but you can see that sometimes residency isn't so great as people make it out to be. And so my wife and I made that decision to leave uh, in 2018. And since then, we've been practicing in Southwest Missouri. Uh, we practice in direct primary care. We have a clinic and we have many patients that we take care of in an area that otherwise would not have doctors. Up, from, up the road from us, uh, there is another clinic. They have six nurse practitioners only. There's not a doctor that practices in that clinic. Uh, this is the way it is in many of the rural areas of this country at this point. Um, and we feel that we actually are able to provide far superior care than that nurse practitioner may be able to just because of our training. In addition to running our clinic for many years, I was the uh, doctor that covered almost a fifth of the county jails for the state of Missouri, traveling almost a thousand miles a week. We no longer are doing that. Our clinic is too busy for me to be able to spend time there. But these are yet another areas where you may think uh, out of sight, out of mind, but those people also need care in jails. Um, I see within the assistant physician uh, program a solution to rural health care shortage and also an avenue to improve re the residency process by creating a, a positive third uh, pathway, a, a competitive force at work to uh, make sure that we don't have situations that occurred in my life, in my wife's life, and in the lives that are uh, right now being affected by the residency process. Uh, we expect that um, through the uh, continued growth of this program that more and more able-bodied and highly trained individuals can continue to practice medicine uh, and take care of people for which they spent all this time uh, training to do. Uh, thank you guys for the time and uh, I'll turn this back over to Jeff and I think there's gonna be some questions here shortly. Thanks very much, Lyman. Uh, before I, I, I go to some questions, i just like to uh, mention, for, just for clarity, that while um, in, in uh, most states, doctors have completed their residency program before they go out into practice, the residency programs are to, to enter a specialty, including the specialty of family medicine. But uh, in most, in, in more than half the states, after just one year of whatever residency program you're in, if you then pass step three of the licensing exam, you can get a license as a, a general practitioner or a GP. Uh, and most GPs go into primary care. Uh, and it, it, I'll, I'll just share my own story. I mean, I'm an older guy. When, uh, when I was in my first year of my five-year residency program to become a general surgeon, 
uh, after completion of my first year in Arizona, I took step three of the license exam, passed it, and applied for and received an Arizona license, which enabled me as a GP to be able to moonlight in urgent cares or emergency rooms, which is very helpful in those days. First of all, I was young enough to be able to do both, um, but at the, because of, I had the physical stamina. But on top of that, um, you know, we had a young fa family uh, and uh, residency programs re paid very little in those days. So it was a way to supplement my income. And that's those, that's the way it is in, in the majority of states. Some states may require two years of residency. So even though uh, there's a residency uh, th that the majority of, of practicing physicians have completed their residency, they don't have to. There's still plenty of general practitioners pra the, uh, providing primary care in, the, in this country. Uh, if, unless anybody wants to comment on that, I'd like to go to take some questions. I'd like to, so, to add to that. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so so as Jeff is saying, there's there's a possibility to practice under a GP status um, when you do not uh, uh, finish your residency process. Uh, the nature of the data that Kevin was bringing up earlier is that um, it has become so difficult for people to get into residency that um, if a person does match, they tend to finish it. Um, it's uh, the abnormal at this point for somebody to not finish uh, their residency is we see the number of uh, GPs, I believe, has steadily begun to drop over time, partly because many of the GPs we had in the past were more from uh, the prior uh, method of training. Um, so while it is possible to get general uh, practitioner status, uh, you must first have that residency spot. The problem we have, as Kevin's data shows, is, is that there is not enough uh, residency spot residency spots and there is not a, enough by a long shot well i'm, I'm going to go to the first question actually that somebody uh, anonymous entered um before we even got started with our uh, event but it, it's it's a nice uh, obvious question as a first question which is who opposes this and uh and and what most of the time are the objections and uh, what, are, what are the responses to those objections? Who, uh, Keith, why don't you take this first as you're the one who had to deal with a lot of opposition in your early going. Right. You know, also, uh, I worked with uh, Senator Nancy Bartow in Arizona as she was shepherding a version of this through her legislature, and their primary opposition was the Arizona Medical Association. And uh, in fact, they required of three years on the license before they would sort of stand down. And I think they ended up becoming neutral. I don't think they endorsed it, but once they then she was able to get it passed. In Missouri, sort of semi-quiet opposition from the uh, uh, Missouri Family Physicians Group. And uh, in my opinion, while the, I've never really heard a good rationale for their opinion other than just generically say, well, you know, it's going to be substandard care because they compare it to a residency training, which there's no argument there. But these folks are not going to be practicing independently. They're going to be practicing with a collaborator the same way that a nurse practitioner does. And so I, in my opinion, the, the opposition is, is turf protecting. I mean, you know, they're kind of pulling the ladder to success up behind them, you know. And uh, in Missouri, when we were passing uh, facilitating legislation for Uber and Lyft, uh, we didn't expect the taxicab companies to sign on with, you know, real uh, 
vigor to try to help get it passed. So, you know, I think as you uh, try this in other states, we were fortunate in Missouri that the Missouri State Medical Association was supportive. But there are many states where the medical elites will, uh, you know, be in opposition to you. And I think it's really You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I've long advocated uh, uh, independent uh, of practice authority to nurse practitioners, and now I think you know more than the more than half the states do grant that. But in some states where assistant physician legislation has been introduced, it's been opposed by that state's nursing association. I kind of find that ironic. Um, and uh, Keith, you had you mentioned in in our green room before we got started, you had some interesting information regarding comparing the number of hours uh, in training for, for example, uh, a person just to get their the the doctorate degree. And this is before they do a residency, uh, and uh, I thought that was really interesting to sh to share with uh, the participants. I just put that up on my screen share. I don't know if it pro projects very well for the audience, but the green is a medical student having completed four years. The red is a nurse practitioner. This is a PA in the yellow, and this is a family medicine residency trained physician. So, you know, the length of time of clinical training is uh, in excess of the nurse practitioner training for a fourth year medical student. And, you know, th these other individuals don't really take the USMLE. So there's not a, a good comparison of qualifications and, you know, accomplishment and uh, ability. Lyman, you wanted to comment about that. Yeah, so we're talking that the age old at this point, uh, uh, objection is that of quality in regards to this program. And uh, one of the things that we need to make sure that we address here is reality of the situation there are not enough doctors. I mentioned it in my opening comments, you know, the six nurse practitioners, that's the maximum that a doctor in Missouri can uh, collaborate with in a uh, in an arrangement. Uh, that's who's uh, serving our community here. Um, there are no doctors. And, and so you cannot have quality if you do not have quantity. It's just not possible. And so what we have to do is open up the floodgates of quantity as well. I spend a lot of time with our patients in our direct primary care model. Our patients love it. I will routinely spend up to an hour with my patients because that's how our business model works. However, that is probably not most people's experience with their doctor because they are so pressed to see so many patients because of the uh, severe shortage. Their normal meeting with patients are 5, 10, 15 minutes maybe. They hardly even know the name of the person they're speaking with. This is a reflection of the shortage of that quantity issue that is showing up. Is it possible that a person who can sit there and listen to you for a while might be able to get better quality, irrespective of how much training they have? Now, what Keith just put up on regards to the slide is absolutely a fact that somebody who goes through med school has far more training than somebody who goes through uh, nurse practitioner or PA training. But there's also the issue of the quantity and being able to have time to listen to your patients. And if we don't have enough doctors, we can't do that. Kevin, you wanted to say something as well. 
Yeah, well, I was just going to say that, um, yeah, there are these concerns, um, but two things. Firstly, some of these foreign doctors, and I, I presented earlier that there were over 5,000 unmatched medical graduates who are citizens, either American grads or foreign grads, who applied for the match and they didn't get anything in the last year. And the, some of these foreign doctors might be very experienced, as I, as I alluded to earlier, um, might be even more experienced in their collaborating positions. So there is that potential um, talent to be able to tap. And the, the match itself is designed for American medical graduates. This is why it's called graduate medical education and, un, and medical school is called undergraduate medical education because they need additional training. The way the system is designed, even these experienced foreign doctors have to um, go through a residency in general to get a license. There are some ad hoc exceptions. I talked about that with my colleagues in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy briefly. But the bottom line is, experienced foreign doctors um, are within this pool. Now, the other thing is, this has been in place in Missouri for years. And as far as I know, and I like to hear Dr. Page, um, I'm sorry, Dr. Dr. Frederick and Dr. Page, um, their opinions on this, I haven't heard any major criticisms of the, the quality of care given by these, by these assistant physicians. I'd, I'd like their opinion on that. But, uh, I can respond to that. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, there was one notable ahead. individual um, who was an assistant physician and kind of got on the wrong side of the law, but it was a real outlier. I don't want to go into the details of it, but that uh, person, I believe, was recently convicted and uh, may have been sentenced. But uh, outside of that, the response and the receptiveness of the communities to assistant physicians has been quite good. And during the pandemic, they were very helpful um, in many aspects of screening and treatment. And uh, so the, we haven't had any uh, that I know of other than that one, you know. Yeah, I, you know, I, I am aware of that situation that Keith is speaking of there. And uh, I'd also say that a lot of that situation is more her business practices more than anything. And so don't be a crook. Um, but. Uh, that is open to anyone with a regular licensure as well. Uh, as far as uh, my own experience in this, and no, we have not had any issues as far as uh, you know, uh, problems with quality. In fact, I have ended up usually, I've replaced in, in various situations, three um, resident trained doctors in various roles uh, in the state uh, because of superior quality as perceived by those who um, were receiving that care when I was working in the jail systems. And so um, I, I would say that uh, there's another thing to, to also add uh, to the quality aspect, and that is recall that the assistant physician uh, law requires a collaborative arrangement to be in place, which can be difficult to attain. Um, you need to convince another doctor that, hey, put me on your license to, you know, do that occasional overseeing that is required in that type of arrangement. And if you have a, a resident trained, fully licensed doctor, do you think they're just gonna sign up anyone for that position? No, that's one of the biggest problems that people have had when they get the assistant physician licensure is that they have a hard time finding a collaborator. If they don't have a, a, a good story, if they don't have uh, good credentials and good scores, uh, they won't get that arrangement. It, it's interesting to bring that up. It's a good segue into what I was going to ask next, but a lot of people don't realize that I, I, I oversee residents in, in a surgical program. Um, 
we uh, physicians who uh, are responsible for you know, supervising or overseeing residents, uh, just like any physician who has a collaborative agreement with an uh, assistant physician, is uh, taking a liability risk. If there's a problem, they're, they're they're at risk. So you have to be willing to do that, and that that has its own way of uh, kind of policing who gets to get supervised. Uh, and for that, that, that leads to my question, which is, uh, what are the similarities and differences between a physician that who provides care at uh, patient care as a resident? where a supervised physician or attending, as we call them, is not always present in the room with a doctor, but but is, uh, but is the patient's always, I'm sorry, but, but the supervising doctor is always available in the event of, uh, you know, some urgent situation, or an assistant physician where the supervising physician or collaborating physician is also not always present in the room with the doctor, but is always available. What, what are the differences? Uh, Lyman, you can, you're the only person on this panel who has been both a resident and assistant physician. So I think I should address that question to you. Okay. Um, it is a very telling question. Uh, it also may reveal some of our dissatisfaction with the residency program. So I don't want to paint all residency programs with my answer. But in my situation, I would say that our supervision and our care from our collaborative physician was, has been far better over the last seven years, six years that we've been uh, with him. Uh, versus residency. Now that was some of the issues though with our residency. Hey, there's somebody down in the ER who's critically ill, go take care of them. And you expect, you know, sage doctor by your side and there's gonna be some uh, actual help in uh, sticky situations. We didn't have that. But I, I don't think that that is unusual, but I do think that that's probably not how residency was supposed to be designed. There should have been more, um, you know, help available in those type of situations. But there is, uh, to, to, the, to the point of that question, there is uh, a very similar um, dynamic at play there where if I did have a question, I am able to call up our good uh, colleague here uh, and he is uh, very much able to help us. If, unless anybody else wants to comment on that, um, I'm gonna go to a question that comes from Josh Archambault. Uh, are there any data on what percentage of providers stay as assistant physicians versus trying to match again? Because, you know, for those who don't know who are viewing this, you got to wait a whole year to match again. It's, uh, it's, that's why you're stuck in limbo if you're unmatched. Uh, uh, Keith, are you aware of any data on how many try to match again or how many stay with uh, being an assistant physician because they're kind of like that? My uh, familiarity with that would just be on an anecdotal basis. Um, and my impression is that most do try to match again. But uh, I wanted to bring up the fact that if you just, like if you put in a time limit, two, three or four years, whatever, it really doesn't do anything for the supply situation because you're still, the bottleneck for attaining a residency is still there. You just buy a little time individual, but you don't create any more fully trained doctors because they're all still waiting in the same queue. So I would just, uh, for those who would consider uh, trying to implement this in other states, I would really shy away from the idea of time limited licenses. I mean, there's no other profession that I know of where there's a time limited license. If anything, you become more capable with time rather than less capable with time. Lyman, you wanted to say something. Absolutely. And so Keith is absolutely correct on the regards to that. And it's also on the business model as well. 
Um, if you have a person that you hire and you're, you're training them up, let's say they're in your clinic and they practice under this licensure and their license expires in three years, what business uh, sense is that for you to do that? Um, the second thing in regards to matching is that now my wife and I have not applied for the match. We we left and we burned the ship. We don't want to, to be a part of the residency process just from our own personal experience. We want to try to, to forge a new path. That's why we're talking about that alternative pathway. We want to see some competition in place for the residency process. We want to improve uh, the number of, of doctors. And Keith said it. Um, if I apply into the, 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 the residency match process and my wife applies into it, there is a chance that we may, we may match um, again, uh, but that takes another, uh, another spot away from someone else, actually two spots away if we did end up matching. And so it did nothing for the supply situation. What we are talking about is trying to, to increase the supply of doctors that are out there. And we have a ready source of supply as uh, Kevin mentioned in his opening remarks. Thousands every year of doctors, thousands of doctors every year are not able to do anything with their degree. Maybe they can go work at an insurance company and deny people care or something like that, but they cannot practice uh, clinical medicine because they do not have the license. This route into medicine uh, is a way to increase the supply and there's uh, plans and, and processes that maybe could even lead to a GP licensure in the long run, which could improve uh, not only the residency programs by creating that competition force in there, but also at the same time, uh, earning to, I, I don't remember how Keith said it, they're earned to, to work or earn to live type of uh, process where you're, you're working and making money as you uh, gain that training required to be independent. Um, you know, uh, before that, I'm glad you brought that up because that's the next thing I want to I want to discuss. But uh, Kevin earlier mentioned about the problem where you have many uh, foreign physicians who have a, sometimes a lot more experience than a collaborating uh, physician. They've been in practice for a number of years in another country, who can't get work as a physician in in uh, the United States because of state licensing laws. You'll be happy to know if, if you haven't heard this. I think this this bill was signed into law on. Uh, last Wednesday in Tennessee, they've become the first state now uh, uh, where if you're a, a, a physician under that category, where you have a license in good standing in another country, uh, I, 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 don't know, I, I don't remember all of the specific details, but if you basically you're a, you're a licensed, experienced physician from another country, you don't have to go through the whole residency requirement that all the other states require in order to get a license to, to practice in, in a state in the United States. In Tennessee, you'll be given a provisional license where you have a collaborating agreement with another licensed physician. And then after two years, uh, if there have been no problems, your license becomes unrestricted. Uh, so that that's a, a great step in the right direction. And uh, Tennessee is the first and at the moment only state to have that provision. Uh, Kevin, you wanted to say something about that actually. Yeah, well, then, yes, I'm glad you pointed it out, Jeff. Yeah, so Tennessee recently passed and the governor signed that into law. Um, this actually borrows from the Australian model, where what they do is they have two streams of, of licensure. They have the equivalent of a GME system for their local grads, and they have a system like what Tennessee has, and Tennessee is essentially borrowing from the Australian model. I talked about this with my colleagues, um, Paul Larkin and John O'Shea in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy where you have an alternative pathway for experienced foreign doctors in Australia, 
where they have to pass their local exams and work with a collaborating physician. And once they demonstrate sufficient competence, they can be recommended to the Australian Medical Board for what they call full registration. So yeah, it seems as if Tennessee is adapting a similar a similar approach. And that's that's a great first step as well. And to go back to the previous point, the bottom line is, and this is essentially, you know, I think what Josh was asking, Josh Archambault was asking, that yes, there are there is the opportunity for people who pursue this assistant physician pathway to apply for residency. But the bottom line is, without the number of residency positions available increasing, you're still going to have this bottleneck and you're still going to have a significant supply of unmatched grads that would need to resort to this approach if it's available rather than getting them the old fashioned GME training. Which brings me to what I'd like to bring up next. Uh, to me, one of the most exciting features of this reform is the potential to offer an alternative pathway to full licensure. I, as soon as I was studying this issue, I was thinking, you know, I completed year one of my five-year surgical residency, then passed step three of the license exam, and I got an Arizona license to practice as a GP in Moonlight and Urgent Care, as I mentioned earlier. So if one year of a residency in still the great majority of states and passing step three of the licensing exam is good enough for a license as a GP, not a specialist, you know, and GPs could always decide later on to go do a specialty residency, become a specialist. Well, then shouldn't completing a certain number of years as an, ascent, as, as an uh, assistant physician, and we could debate what the, the number of years should be, but a certain number of years plus passing step three of the U.S. licensing exam also qualify a doctor to be licensed as a GP and have, you know, be unrestricted. I'd like, uh, I'd like to hear each of your thoughts on that. So let me start with uh, Keith. Yes, uh, I think it's a real opportunity that uh, states still have under their purview the regulation of medical practice. And so a state could acknowledge another entity to approve postdoctoral medical education. Um, and that would actually improve the, the throughput of trained doctors as opposed to, you know, uh, other ideas that don't really end up increasing the supply. The other thing that's unique about this, and it's the reason I coined the term earn while you learn, if we do get in place uh, Medicare reimbursement and third-party insurance reimbursement, the, the compensation for care delivered can cover the cost of the alternative pathway residency. Whereas currently they're not, they're not uh, keeping up. The number of residency slots is not keeping up because there's not enough funding. And I forget the year, but it was the Budget Reconciliation Act of, I want to say '98. I don't, I don't, I can't remember. But uh, the funding was frozen, and so they're just not keeping up. Now there's always talk about we're going to expand the number of residency slots, but it never really quite happens. So this would not be dependent upon additional funding sources for residency training programs because they could earn while they learn. One final point I wanted to make that's a little bit related. When I wrote the legislation, legislative drafting, I wanted to make it clear that an individual who was in a residency program, but dissatisfied or maybe more than dissatisfied, um, is still eligible for this. So the, the wording in Missouri is that to be eligible, you have to have not completed a residency training program. So if you're in the residency and you're really struggling with mental health issues and you know, 
one third of residents in some studies have shown clinical depression and about 11% suicidal ideation. So instead of uh, taking some other drastic measure, they could decide to step back from their residency, come to Missouri under a licensed physician and still pursue their, their goals. Um, yeah, in fact, that's sort of Lyman's uh, story in, in a way. Um, be, uh, before I, I ask uh, for, I want to go to Kevin next, but, um, you know, it's a subject for a whole different uh, uh, paper and event about how residency programs uh, have over the years become basically dependent on federal funding. The federal government got into funding residency programs when starting back in the I think in the 60s with the Medicare program got started. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be that uh, the residency programs got funding. It was it was earn and learn, and uh, and and they didn't rely on government money. But now, uh, for reasons that are beyond the scope of this discussion, uh, it seems like if the if uh, the Congress doesn't appropriate money to help hospitals start residency programs, they just don't happen. So Kevin, let, let me ask what, what you think though about the idea of this as an alternative pathway, or you could comment on what I just said as well. Or oh, absolutely. I think it would be a great idea if this were an alternative pathway. And once the licensure becomes more common amongst all states, I think that the market will have an opportunity to allow for you know formalized alternative training programs and alternative board certifications that both people who have graduated from ACGME programs, as well as these alternative programs alike, can apply for. And it would be great, your colleagues, uh, Michael Cannon and Michael Tanner talked about this in a book they published several years ago, um, Healthy Competition, about having multiple opportunities for certification where it would be essentially like stamps of approval and doctors themselves could show their qualifications that way by having these alternative certifications. And once the licensure comes into the picture, I think the, um, these opportunities may very well come into fruition. And yeah, it's, it's not practical to keep expanding residencies because the federal budget is so strained as it is already that it's alternative approaches like this, like Dr. Um, like, uh, I'm sorry, um, the, the previous uh, doctor had mentioned uh, to earn as they learn um, would be a great, um, great approach rather than having federal money, money um, in, in the picture. Lyman, you're next. Yeah. So one of the things we're talking about the federal money, which obviously is at the heart of the residency program, it is entirely funded by the Medicare Medicaid system, CMS budget. Uh, I would add this, though. There doesn't seem to be a lot of incentive to increase the number of residency spots. And uh, I know this because residents are actually a source of a great deal of profit for hospitals. I was speaking with a residency director over here in Springfield, um, former residency director, and, and uh, they were worth about one and a half million uh, per doctor, and they only were paid 50. And so there is a way, there's no will. And so I think that some of the reasons we want to have that alternative pathway is, is that we really need to think differently. My home state of Nebraska, where I'm originally from, there will be um, a doctor probably graduate or not graduating, retiring here. Let's say uh, there'll be 10 of them up in small, very rural counties with maybe 3,000 people in the county total. Uh, there will be no doctors to recruit into that area. What if instead of uh, having this residency trained doctor brought in, this 
doctor that's about to retire takes on an apprentice through this type of program, this assistant physician program, and they train them up for three years with the proper support from uh, some stamping uh, approval stamping organization that makes sure that they are getting the the criteria that would be necessary for them to be independent. And then after that apprentice process, process, that small county in rural Nebraska finally can have a replacement for their 75-year-old doctor who has refused to retire because he know, knows there's going to be no doctors in that area. We have uh, the opportunity here to really change the way that doctors are trained and even to train them where they are needed the most rather than just in some centrally located area such as a, a big city which is where most residency programs are located. Um, I'm going to combine two questions into one that, uh, that came on, both from Anonymous, because they kind of go together. Uh, the question is that, you know, and correctly, uh, says medical schools vary a lot in the clinical training provided as opposed to the scientific topics they provide, like anatomy, biochemistry, et cetera. And the idea behind the residency program is to give more clinical experience uh, and uh, because when you graduate from medical school, it doesn't it, it doesn't provide all of the clinical experience you need. So, is there a prescribed training, or should there be a standardized uh, quality of training for assist assistant physicians? And the other question is: uh, uh, there are already cases of concerns that attending physicians are exploiting assistant physicians as quote cheap labor. Although I would say that same thing about residents, <laughs> they get exploited <laughs> as cheap labor as well. Uh, but so, what do you? What are your thoughts about uh, some sort of uh, uh, standardized uh, um, criteria for for uh, training assistant physicians? Uh, you want to start with that, Keith? Yes, yes, it's absolutely crucial to the success of such a program. I wouldn't ever think about recommending mm -hmm. such a program without. Uh, a real thoughtful process to establish a curriculum and uh, benchmark examinations and, you know, uh, measurements of mastery of the material that just has to be because otherwise there's no standardization from one assistant physician's position to the next. And so that's where I mentioned the concept of using sort of a grand rounds approach using ECHO which is just a method of putting everybody together, sort of like this forum, this format is. But uh, yes, I think uh, in each state, there would need to be medical educators, um, perhaps recent residency graduates, uh, get together and work through adapting a curriculum that would be appropriate for the end result. And then that would have to be strictly implemented to make sure that there were benchmark exams along the way, and then a final exam at the end of the whole process. So yes, I think that's critical to uh, such a program. SMLE, the benchmark exam, I mean, I, that's, that's when I passed year one of general surgery residency and step three of the, of the USMLE, I got a license. So isn't that enough of a benchmark uh, and then also explain to people who may not have heard about it, about what this echo is. Give it, elaborate on it, please. Yes, uh, you were muted for the first bit of that, but I think I understand what you were asking. Uh, echo stands for Enhanced Community Health Outreach, and it was pioneered in, I believe it was New Mexico. And it was an effort to 
bring the ability to manage liver failure out to some of the reservations. I believe that is the history of their uh, gastroenterology experts at major universities linking up with physicians out in these areas uh, and periodically would have these presentations. And then I think they had six or eight uh, sites participating in the call and they would ask clinical questions. Then the over the course of many months, or I don't know how long they, they pursued the program, but that would result in the participants becoming more comfortable with managing liver failure. And so that, that entity, ECHO, I believe we, we have a robust program in Missouri now, we, while we're still in the list, and I think many states have that. And if not that, then some other, you know, similar technology to just allow sharing of information and interaction so that you can have a near classroom experience in a virtual way. Okay, but what about the other thing that isn't passing? That's probably the part that I was cut off on. Uh, when, when I took step three of the USMLE after my first year of my surgical residency, I got a license. Doesn't that serve as the benchmark, the USMLE? Why it, should sure. there be a, but a different one for assistant physicians? I guess I had in mind, uh, you know, when you finish a service, you are either evaluated or you have a, a test to take to kind of check as you're going. Instead of waiting to the end of a year, taking a test and failing it, take it more frequently to get feedback about whether you're actually applying yourself well enough to master the material that's required. But again, this would have to be worked out by those who have a lot of experience with medical education to s arrive at the best process to use to get these folks through this, these training years. Uh, anybody else want to comment on this question? Because uh, we're running out of time and I have one more question I want to get in. Okay, um, this, this is a practical question. Uh, what about malpractice insurance coverage for assistant physicians? They have to get there in those states where they're allowed. Are they able to get malpractice insurance coverage? How does that work? Lyman? Yes, yeah, it wasn't an issue for us. Um, there are several companies in this uh, state that provide malpractice insurance. Oh, good. So. Okay, good. Good. Well, our time, we're running out of time. This was uh, fascinating and we can go on much longer. I have a lot of questions that I'm sorry I was unable to get to. Uh, for those who are interested in pursuing this further, uh, please uh, visit the links that we have on our webpage. Uh, that there's a lot more detail about this there. And um, this event is being recorded and archived. So if you came in towards the end uh, and you missed part of it, or you want to watch it again or share it with people who missed it, uh, a few hours from now, it's going to be available at the Cato website, cato.org. And you could uh, uh, click on the link and share it with others. I want to thank uh, my panel for being here and discussing this very interesting, innovative topic. And I want to thank you all for watching.